Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship is the English congregation of Korean World Mission Baptist Church located in Richardson, Texas. We hold our Sunday services at 11 a.m. and have a time of fellowship and Bible study at 1 p.m. This week's sermon is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 is our text for today, and it says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Amen. So when I was in elementary school, I was part of a, uh, like a kids, children's basketball team, like a YMCA basketball team. Uh, I forgot what grade I was in, but we were all little kids, like the ends, the final score of the game would be like, 24 to 21 or something crazy like that. Um, but at the end of the season, uh, my, friend, uh, my friend's dad was the coach of our team, and he invited the whole team over to their house after the season was over to uh, have a sleepover. And I think, and I'm not sure, but I think this was the first time that I had slept over at, like, a white person's house. Okay, I'd always, I, All my friends at the time that I had slept over, they were Korean friends, they were from my church. Uh, but this is the first time I was like, oh, this is, a, this is like a sleepover where... where Everyone's white. <laughs> you know, like, um, and so I found out that the, the, the rules were different. I would walk into the house and with all the other kids, and uh, they didn't take their shoes off, which was such a weird thing at the time. Like, they, they just walked in with their shoes. I'm like, what are, you, what are you doing? You know, and they're like, what are you doing to put your shoes back on? You know, like, we don't want to see your feet and things like that. Like, it was a, it was a weird thing. And it was odd, too, because um, even though it was a party or whatever it was or a sleepover, um, you know, they let us stay up all night playing video games, eating candy and pizza and, and drinking sodas in the middle of the night. And it was so odd because my household, we weren't allowed to eat candy that late or soda or, or anything like that that late. We were supposed to do our homework and then go to bed, you know, like good children. Um, so this was such a weird thing. And so, you know, when I get back home, I'm taking my shoes off and I'm like totally like dissatisfied with how my household is run, right? Um, and, and it caused me to question every rule that was in my house. So I said, why do we have to do this? Why do we have to take our shoes off? Why, do I, why can't I eat candy for, for dinner? You know, why can't I do these things, right? And it made me question and ask the question, whose rules do I really want to be living by, right? Whose rules are we really living by when we think about it? And in the past few weeks when we've been in First Peter, We've been hammering home the idea that Peter is trying to make a distinguishing mark between his readers and the society that they are living in, right? Peter is writing to churches who have believers that are in societies that are hostile towards Christianity. And so they're being persecuted, they're being ridiculed, disparaged, uh, discouraged, maybe even losing jobs. And Peter's message has been to pound in an identity in them, right? And he's saying things like, you are the children of God. You are born again to a living hope. You are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All these things being really, really encouraging for people who might be be, um, being persecuted. And then with these identities come certain sets of behaviors, right? 
And so there's a worldview that the readers of this letter hold that allow them to declare and display this identity that they have been born again into. And so, for example, they are to set their hopes fully on the grace that will be revealed to them when Christ returns. They are to love one another with a sincere brotherly love. They are to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy. They are to abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep their conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And so the idea behind all of this is, again, to distinguish Christians from their surrounding societies. And the way this is done is that they are to live by their allegiance to Jesus. So another way of saying that is that they are to live by standing firm in their faith in Jesus. And so whatever trials or tribulations or persecution might come their way, their faith is ultimately what will drive them through and distinguish them and separate them from their culture and society. But then we come to this passage that we just read, and we come to the same question from before. Whose rules are we living by? Whose rules do we want to live by? And Peter is taking all this time and effort to say, live as believers of Christ. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of the Roman Empire necessarily. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Your allegiance is to King Jesus. You are to distinguish your life and your behavior from the society and culture and worldview around you. Now, be good citizens and submit to the emperor. It seems really backwards or odd or conflicting, right? That you are to distinguish yourself and at the same time, just be good citizens in the society that you're living in. It seems odd. And so whose rules are we living by? And what we will discover as we walk through this passage is this main idea, that when we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, we can display our love for God and for our neighbor. Okay, when we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, we can display our love for God and for our neighbor. The first point in verses 13 through 15, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so as Christians, we are to submit to human authorities. That's what it's telling us. Now, the problem with this, of course, is straight out from the outset, right? problem is the idea of being subject, submitting to being submissive towards, right? From the Garden of Eden, that has been our problem. Adam and Eve in the Garden, they're told to be fruitful, multiply, they have everything they need, everything is provided for, they're walking with God in the Garden, and then suddenly they're deceived by the serpent, and they rebel against God. They believe the words of the serpent and take and eat from the fruit, uh, fruit of the tree that they're not supposed to eat from. Right? So from the very beginning, it seems that we are cursed to fight for our own independence and autonomy from God. One of the slogans of the American Revolution, if you were to go to Philadelphia today and you were to visit maybe an antique shop, you might find some American Revolution uh, like a memorabilia. And one of the slogans that was being passed around during that time was this, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. Basically what they're saying is that uh, the United States does not serve England. There's a king a thousand miles away. We don't serve that sovereign. We are a democratic society. We're going to make a president, and that's where the revolution began, right? We serve no sovereign here. And unfortunately, that same, that same slogan is marked on our hearts as fallen human beings, as, as, as fallen, sinful human beings. Our hearts are, is an echo chamber that continues to scream, we serve no sovereign in here. Our hearts, they are ours. Right? We have our own wisdom. I'll make my own decisions. I'm in control of my own life. 
Nobody can tell me what to do. I am my own authority. That's the unfortunate thing about the, the condition that we're in as human beings. But regardless, the scripture, God tells us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This word institution, if you were to go back and look at the original language, it's the same word uh, used to describe creation. So be subject to uh, human creation. But the word also, if you were to look in other documents in the same ancient time, it's also used uh, of when uh, cities or towns were being uh, settled and they were trying to build a governmental structure. And basically, it basically means government. Right? There's a government structure that's being put in place. And so, as Christians, we are to submit to human authorities or to the government, whatever government that we might be in. However, Peter is not telling his readers here, right? So when we think of the word creation, Peter's not telling his readers to submit to every human being created by God, right? We're not to just all the time. I mean, maybe as Koreans, we kind of look like that because we keep bowing to each other and stuff. But, but, the, <laughs> but it's not to submit to every human being created by God. He's making a claim about the nature of authority. So in, in Peter's day, in the day of the, these readers, the Roman emperor, who was the authority, was often considered an object of worship. There would be emperor cults, cults created to worship the emperor. And so Christians, of course, who are being persecuted, they're going to be tempted to participate in worshiping the emperor in these emperor cults. But Peter was reminding his readers at the outset that the rulers are merely creatures created by God, human authorities, right? Human government. And they only exist under his own or under God's lordship. And so he says, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, the highest authority in the land, or whether it be to a lesser authority, to governors sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, we are to submit to those authorities. So what is he talking about, these emperors and the governors? Well, um, my mother, back in, uh, this is 2005, this would be September 2005, and I know this. Uh, because my mother bought a car for my sister on her birthday, and it is the car that I am driving today. It's a Toyota Corolla out there. Uh, it's my sister's old car from high school. And she bought that for my uh, sister on her birthday. And my mother, she's a very thorough shopper, okay? So I'm not a thorough shopper. My wife can attest to this, and my wife is the, like my mother in that sense, is that they are very, they have to, like, find out every option to find out what is the cheapest price. And for me, I'm like, if it's within our budget, just get it. It's just, you know what I mean? Like, that's, that's the kind of mindset. I don't want to go through every single Amazon, you know, thing. I don't want to shop in every store to look for the, the same thing at a cheaper price or whatever. I just, like if, it, like, if we can afford it, let's just get it. Like, why do we have to, you know? But my mother was a very, I mean, maybe more thorough than my wife. She, she was a very, very thorough shopper. And she's going to all these different dealerships trying to find this car at the right price for my sister, right? And on top of that, she finally found a place. She is an incredible haggler, okay? She haggles like nobody's business. It is insane. And so she's sitting there, and we're there for hours. And I'm, a, I'm like a, I don't know, how old I was? I was maybe 14, 15 at the time. I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, let's just go home or just get the car. But she's like just grinding this poor car salesman down to the ground, just like trying to get this thing. And, at that, and it came to a point where the salesperson was like, okay, I cannot sell you this car at that price. I have to get approval from my manager if I want to do this, right? And then my mom, she's like, okay, go get your manager then, right? And so the manager comes out, and he's like, she's, he's looking at the prize, discussing, and, and finally he's like, look, lady, I'm not even going to make any money off of this if I sell it to you at this point. She's like, not my problem. Sounds like a personal problem, right? Like, 
Like this is, and she just, and, but, but this is the same, this is the idea, right? So whether, it doesn't matter at what point uh, the, or what, what authority it is. There are human authorities that exist, and we are to submit to them. You don't have to call for the manager, right, in order to submit to an authority. Like if there were a lot of people doing this at this time. They, were, they, would, they would not submit to a governor that was sent to represent the will of the emperor, but rather they'd just be like, no, I submit to the emperor. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't listen to this uh, governor, this lesser author authority. I only listen to the highest authority. But that is not God's intention for us as Christians. As Christians, we have to submit to any authority, whether it be on the state level or the, uh, the, the federal level, or within our families, right? Our parents, our, our authorities over us, right? So the same way, we are to submit to any authority that's been formally instituted by God. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. And so the reason why we have to uh, submit to any authorities is because God ultimately is the one who has instituted these authorities. Right? The, the authority is from God, and therefore, if we disobey or resist these authorities, then we also are resist resisting God and incurring judgment from God. And so this brings us to the question of what is really then the function of governmental authority? And, and, and Peter tells us, what's the function of governmental authority? It's two things. It's to punish those who break the law or who do evil, as Peter puts it, or it's to praise those who do good. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he agrees to this in Romans, again, 13, verses 3 through 5. He said, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? When, then do what is good. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Talking about the authority. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, submission, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. The idea, the function of government in our life, is that they are to punish those who break the law. I'm sure many of us have done that, speeding tickets, things like that. If you break the law, the government comes in through the form of the police chasing us down and gives us a ticket. That's what, that's what happens. But at the same time, they are also to praise those who do good. Right? It says this. Now, what does this look like? What is doing good? Uh, what does it mean to do good in our society in a way that uh, we can be either praised or given approval from the government? So, uh, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7 says this. So, this is in the context of Israel being in exile, much like the readers of this letter in 1 Peter, right? They're in exile. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That is what it means to do good for your city or for your society, where you can receive approval from the government. Right? It's to seek the welfare of the city, essentially. For uh, and to do, th 
doing that, doing good, seeking the welfare of the city, this is the will of God, right? This is what verse 15 says, for this is the will of God. And doing good, doing the seeking the welfare of the city, especially as Christians living in a hostile society like the readers are, it silences the ignorance of foolish people. In, in our last week, we talked about, um, uh, or for, uh, Peter talked about those who would accuse Christians of being evildoers. And it says this, to, uh, to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the same idea. Doing good will silence the, uh, the ignorance of foolish people. Um, there is a pastor out in Washington, D.C. named uh, Mark Dever. Uh, you might start hearing that name a lot from pastoral staff a lot. Um, only because uh, we use uh, resources from a ministry that he has created called Nine Marks Ministries. We use a lot of the ministries. Any changes that you're going to see from here on out, probably from <laughs> inspired from this Nine Marks ministry. And Nine Marks is Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and they are a biblical resource for building healthy churches all over the place. Um, but how they got started is actually very, very interesting. Um, so they pastor, uh, or Mark Dever pastors a church in Washington, D.C. called Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Um, and he's been there, I think, since like 1994, like mid, mid-90s. Um, and Nine Marks started in 98. And uh, how it started was that the church has a neighbor, uh, like somebody who lived near the church, who had been living in, that, living in the house for a really long time. And he had seen how the church was before Mark Dever had come in. And that church had been around for like over 100 years. It was like from like 1887 or something crazy like that. And so this man had seen this church and, and, and seen the witness of its people. And it, he always considered it as a reverse witness. As in, it w- did not look good for Jesus. It did not, these Christians did not represent Christ well. And this, uh, this neighbor happened to think that way. That these, oh, these, this church is kind of pointless. It's useless. Why, what are Christians, right? And it was interesting because he's also, that man also happened to be a PhD of American colonialism. And so Christianity happened to be, you know, a big part of how Americans uh, lived, especially in those early days. And so, uh, so he, he was a very smart man, very, you know, like, he, and he was very wealthy. I think he might have been a professor at Yale or something like that. And, uh, but then Mark Dever came in, and for a few years he was doing ministry, and he, and, and, and he realized that the people, the neighbor realized that the people at this church were suddenly changing. Like, they were suddenly growing, being sanctified, and they were uh, doing good for the city. That their community started to grow, and it started to improve, and things were, be- uh, the welfare of the city was sought after, right? Seeking the welfare of the city. All the people of this church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, happened to starting doing good for the city. And so this man, this neighbor, seeing this and seeing Mark Dever, was, asked him, what are, you, what are you guys doing? Like, how can you multiply what you guys are doing for other churches? And he's like, I don't know. We're just, you know, we're doing what we're doing, right? Like, we're just trying to be a healthy church, all the gospel, preaching, all those things. And he's like, can you replicate this? And he's like, I don't know, maybe, but we don't, we need the resource. We don't have the resources to do so. And so this neighbor funded uh, Mark Dever and his partner for uh, $100,000 a year for three years to do this, to create this ministry to help other churches do the same thing for their, for their neighborhoods and their communities at their churches. And this man, by the way, was an unbeliever. That's, that, that's the most fascinating thing. He just saw that the, the good of the city was sought after by these Christians at this church. And so he wanted to bless that by 
funding this ministry and do it all over the place. And I, I don't know if that person ever became a Christian or not. But that is an example of how Christians ought to seek the welfare of their city, that we should see communities around churches improve because of the Christians who are around it. And we do this because a proper response to authorities, submitting to governmental authorities, these kinds of things, and trying to gain approval from government, it allows us uh, Christians to reflect positively on Jesus. That's the whole point, right? A proper response to authority by Christians reflects positively on Jesus. And so we submit, right? We are subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. If you go back to verse 13, it says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human uh, institution. And what that means, it means for God's glory, for his name's sake, for his reputation's sake, we submit to every human institution. Ultimately, a Christian who properly responds to authority displays a positive reflection of Jesus. The perception of Christians in the United States is all over the map. Uh, in a recent study in 2019, some adjectives that were used describing Christians included caring, hopeful, friendly, they were encouraging, generous, often misunderstood, and even good-humored, right? These are adjectives used by, or used uh, to describe Christians. Now, of course, these are adjectives used by other Christians to describe other Christians, but still, that's a, that's, those were adjectives being used. But other adjectives included this, narrow-minded, homophobic, puritanical, which is another way of saying old-fashioned, uptight, invasive, misogynistic, racist, selfish, foolish, hurtful, and unhappy, unhappy Christians. And of course, most of these were from non-Christians, people who were not believers. And the conclusion of this study came to this quote. It said, of course, it's most important that Christians of all traditions, evangelical or otherwise, concern themselves with the reputation of Jesus, right, the Lord's sake. Yet, will the public witness of evangelicals be a bridge or a barrier to the very thing they hold most dear, which is persuading others to put their faith in Christ. The findings strongly suggest that the perceptions of evangelicals are more barrier than bridge on the road to gaining a hearing for the gospel. As such, the results of this research require much soul-searching among Christians discern, to discern a way forward with the current evangelical brand. The perception of Christians, in America anyway, recently, is not that great. It serves more as a barrier than a bridge to the gospel. Right? And it's something that we need to think about. And what the Bible is telling us is that by doing this, by submitting to governmental structures that are in our society, this can help build a bridge for the gospel. Next, as Christians, we are to live as free people. This is verse 16. As Christians, we are to live as free people. Live as, free, as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Okay. So it says, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So there were Christians in those days that were saying things like this. They would use their, their freedom that they found in Christ by believing in him, freedom from sin and shame and death. They were using that freedom to excuse their sin to not be lawful citizens in the society that they were being in, right? So again, it's the same whether emperor or governor. So they're saying, yeah, well, my highest authority is God. So I don't, your laws don't apply to me, right? That's what the, some of these citizens were doing. And so Peter is telling them, don't use that. 
Don't use your freedom that you have in Christ because he's not denying that. He's not denying that God is your highest authority and we are to live by his law and his word. He's not denying that, but he's like, but, and that's the freedom that we have as Christians. But don't use that freedom as an excuse to not be lawful citizens of the society that you're living in, even in the midst of persecution. Right? Don't use your Christian freedom to do that. So rather, be servants of God. Right? That was the idea. We are to be servants of God. We are to live as servants of God. Martin Luther wrote, Martin Luther, he's a Protestant reformer. He wrote in 1520, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. Right? He's the most, a Christian is the freest person in the world. He's a king. He's royalty. He's most free of all, and he is subject to nobody. And then he says in the very same sentence, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Basically saying, instead of using your freedom to, to uh, cover up your, the evil that you're doing, by, not, uh, by disobeying the law. Rather, use it to serve others, to love others, to be a good law-abiding citizen in the society that you're living in. This is what we ought to do as well. We are to take on the embrace this identity that we are a royal priesthood, right? That we talked about this. We are a royal priesthood. We are royalty. We are priests of God. And we are the most free because of what Jesus has done on the cross, freeing us from sin and death. And so we should use that freedom to be the most dutiful servant of all and be subject to everyone. And then finally, in verse 17, he gives us uh, a few different imperatives, commandments. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor, right? Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. I'm going to take these in different order just because you can, you'll see that he uses the two of the same imperatives, honor, right? Honor everyone and honor the emperor. He uses those two, right? And then, when he's talking about the brotherhood, he says, he says, love the brotherhood. And when he's talking about God, you are to fear God. And so as Christians, we are to honor our authorities, right? We're to honor the authorities, but we are to fear God. As Christians, we are to honor authorities, but fear God. So <clears throat> to honor uh, the emperor, what does that mean? What does it mean to honor the emperor? It's to honor the work that, whatever work that he's doing, whatever laws he has instituted, whatever laws he's, uh, he's put out to pass, we are to obey those laws the best as we can. Be good, law-abiding citizens. And so you, we can think about this even in our context. We're in a tricky situation, I feel like, especially as Christians. We have a president who does to seem to, seem to fall short of the ideal Christian morality, right? Like he seems to fall short in that regard. And yet, still, he is the president of the United States. And it might be easy for us to say, not my president, not my president, that for some reason, there's always a group of people saying, not my president, to every president. But at the same time, he's still the president of the United States. We are to honor him as such by whatever laws he's putting out, whatever he's doing. Uh, we are to honor those things. We are to live by whatever uh, laws he has put in place. And that's the way we can do it, whether or not this person is somebody we can respect or not. But... This is different with God. It says, honor the emperor, but fear God. Fear God. Jesus says this in Matthew 10. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. That's the emperor. That's President Trump. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's God. You are to fear God. The worst that President Trump can do to us is kill us. 
That's the worst he can do to us. And as Christians, it's not so bad, honestly, because we're gonna, we know that the resurrection is coming. So we know that's the worst he can do to us. So we, we shouldn't have to fear him, but rather we ought to fear God. We're to fear God. We are to obey his word, his authority, his will, his commandments. Whatever way he has made for us, we are to follow and stay in that lane. Because we are to fear him. He can destroy both soul and body in hell. There is something to fear about God. He is the authority that we should be most afraid of and that we should obey uh, uh, strongly. And in doing so, though, in both honoring the emperor and fearing God, this is how we show love to God. This is how we love God, that we honor the people that he's put in place in authority and to fear him. To understand who he is and, and, and his holiness and understanding our sinfulness and to be humble. And that's how we can show our love to God. And then secondly, as Christians, we are to honor everyone but love our brothers and sisters in Christ. As Christians, we are to honor everyone and love our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does it mean to honor everyone? Sort of in the same way, we are to look at each other. Every person that we come across, understand that they are made in the image of God. They too, just like us, are made in the image of God. They are broken, fallen creatures like us, created by God. But God loves them. They're made in his image. They have dignity and worth and value, all because they are in, in made in the image of God. And we are to honor them as such. We are to show kindness and hospitality and love. Those are all important things that we ought to do as Christians. But we have to love the brotherhood. Right? We have to love the brotherhood. Who is the brotherhood? The brotherhood are fellow Christians. And so if you see... In the New Testament, somebody calling uh, each other uh, the brothers or sisters in, in the New Testament letters, they're talking about other Christians. But we often forget this. When we read the New Testament, we think it's just like a general thing, like everyone's a brother and sister, right? Because we're all human beings. We're all in this together. But no, the New Testament is actually very specific. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then you are my brother, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're my sister. We become a family in Christ. And so to love the brotherhood means to love Christians in a specific covenantal way, right? Through Jesus, through the new covenant that he has inaugurated through his life, death, and resurrection, we are in covenant with one another. If you're a member of this church, of Zoe Fellowship, you signed a covenant when you went through our membership, right? And there were certain things that we expected you as a member of this congregation to carry out. And so, like I said last week, the best way that you can obey this command to love the brotherhood is to take your church membership seriously, to do those things, and to look at one another who are other members of this church, and to care for one another, to meet one another's needs. When it says to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, loving yourself doesn't mean like the world means to love yourself, to give yourself like an emotional boost, to treat yourself, to make yourself feel better, make sure you're like stable and emotionally in the right place and all those things. That's not what it means to love yourself when the Bible says that. But when the Bible says the way that you love, you love your neighbor as yourself, it means you would take care of yourself. You eat. You pay your rent so you have a place to stay, right? You get to places. You go to work. You do all these things. You take care of yourself. So do the same thing for your neighbor. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You take care of yourself. Take care of your neighbor. And this sort of care is meant to be shown covenantally to the brotherhood, to those who are also followers of Christ. There's a special covenantal, covenantal familial love that we are to show brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And this is how we love our neighbor. And so these last 
few commandments. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the fulfillment of the great commission, or the great commandment of to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Peter's just borrowing from Jesus and putting it in a different way. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. Love God, the greatest commandment. So as Christians, we are to honor authorities but fear God. As Christians, we are to honor everyone but love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the point of, get, of all this, again, is that when we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives, we can display our love for both God and our neighbor. Um, now, wh- why would we do this? What is, what is really the end goal? Obviously, we have things like uh, doing the will of God, that we are doing it for the Lord's sake, his reputation, right? But is there something more to this? And I think there is. 1 Corinthians 9, this is the Apostle Paul. He says this, For though I am free from all, right, so living as free people, for though I am free from all, I, made, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one, under the law, though not, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. That's the point. That in submitting to the authorities that we have, in showing kindness to our neighbor, and seeking the welfare of our city, you do it for the sake of the gospel, that you would build bridges and not barriers to the gospel, that more people would come to know and that you would win people to Christ. That's the whole point. Now, there is something we have to address, however, about governments and authorities, is this, right? There's always this question. Is there a point when we should resist authorities in our lives? Is there a point, a line, that has to be crossed before we start to resist, right? And, and pers- uh, 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 that we might look like that we might be disobeying God in this commandment, right? That we would reject or resist authorities in our lives. Is there a point where we do that? This is what we call civil disobedience, Okay. The refusal to comply with certain laws or to pay taxes and fines as a peaceful form of political protest. That's what civil disobedience ultimately is. Now, does the Bible show this? Does the Bible show civil disobedience? Does the Bible show places where we, as citizens of a society, should resist the authorities that God has instituted and placed over us? Civil disobedience, um, my friend used this word when he was, I think, maybe 19, maybe 20, and he studied abroad in Europe, and he drank lots of wine, because he could. And here, in America, he couldn't, right, or he didn't, because you have to be 21 or older to drink. But when he was in Europe, you only have to be 18, and so he drank a lot, right? And he came back, and he continued to drink wine, even though he was not supposed to. And I was like, dude, why, you're not old enough to drink it. Why are you drinking? Right? He's like, Civil disobedience. <laughs> and I was, just, I was like, what? It's like, I am protesting the age of, <laughs> like, alcohol. Like, I do not, I will protest. It. Like, that is not civil disobedience. 
Okay, that, at that point, that is exactly what Peter says to using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, right? To avoid being a good law-abiding citizen, you, you do what you want to do, right? That is not civil disobedience. That's embarrassing is what that is. This is civil disobedience. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. That's civil disobedience. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, a law, that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this affair. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is civil disobedience. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, the high priest and questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in Jesus' name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter, the one who wrote this letter, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. That is civil disobedience. Civil disobedience, the only time for Christians, for us, to be able to practice civil disobedience is if we are coerced to sin against God. That is the only situation where that's possible, or one that we should. Otherwise, we ought to be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. That's simply put, right? We are to obey God rather than man. So whose rules are we living by? We're living by God's rules. And God's rules tell us to be subject to the government and human authorities that are placed around us because they are from God. Let me give you one more instance of civil disobedience. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched 
So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they may catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you teach, uh, that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. While this lines up with Paul saying to submit to human institutions, Jesus is making very clear whose rules we're living by. Right? So to Caesar, pay the taxes. Do whatever the government says. It's fine. His image, Caesar's image is on that coin. It's his anyway. Give it to him. But whose image is on you as human beings? You are made in the image of God. Give yourself wholly and fully to God. That's the idea. You are to give yourself to God. Give the things to God that are God's. And so doing so, in doing so, in submitting to human authorities, in submitting ultimately, being servants of God, right, to give things to God that are God's, in doing so, we can be a positive witness to build bridges to the gospel and not barriers to the gospel so that we might win some to Jesus.